Welcome back to our study of 1 Samuel. Now, we're just a few chapters in, and we've seen some major themes, and I'm rehearsing these virtually every week because it's really important with these books that are so historically driven, narrative driven, whatever you might want to say, it's easy to miss the broader themes and miss the ways in which these texts are pointing us to Jesus Christ. Of course, in the very beginning, you have this reversal motif that Luke, in all likelihood, grabs a hold of, seeing uh, Hannah as a prefiguring of, of Mary, and um, Samuel, then, as this miracle child, as a prefiguring of Christ, and of course, Samuel, being a prophet, points us to uh, Christ, who is going to be the prophet par excellence. And we've talked about in other ways how how the failure of the judges points to the need for the judge, and the failure of the priests points to a need for the priest. And then we're going to see the climax is the failure of the kings, the earthly kings, points to our need for a true king. All of these fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So these are perhaps the major themes that we've had leading up to this book and into this book thus far. To get back into the story, if you remember from chapter 4, now we left off you know, basically through chapter 6, so this is going to be a brief recap, but you remember because of the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel, the Lord had handed them over to military defeat, and that's simply part of the covenant. They had violated the covenant, God is not with them, military defeat. Well, they think that they're going to strong arm God, and so they concoct this plan to go grab the ark, bring the ark into battle, and certainly they're going to prevail. Well, never did they ask the Lord if they could remove the ark. Never did they ask the Lord if this was permissible. They just do this by way of superstition and strong-arming God, and here's our magic talisman by which we're going to defeat the Philistines. It does not go well. Obviously, they are routed multiple times more than they were originally, and horror of all horrors, the ark is captured. <coughs> Excuse me. The ark being captured then culminates with this fulfillment over and against the unfaithful priestly family of Eli. Both of his sons, Phineas and Hophni, who are with the ark, are killed in battle on the same day. Upon hearing this terrible news, not only of the death of his sons, but even more of the capture of God's ark, Eli, who is old and we're told heavy, falls backwards in his chair and breaks his neck. We then transition that Eli's daughter-in-law, who is pregnant, um, finds out of this news and it ends up uh, miscarrying, um, or excuse me, not miscarrying, dying, and her child she names Ichabod, namely the glory has departed. Now, if I failed to mention this last week, I really shouldn't have, but I think I touched on it. This concept of the glory of the Lord and Ichabod, you know, kabod, kavod being the glory and Ichabod being like a glory or, the, or no glory or the glory has departed. Important for us to realize then at this point that here the glory of the Lord is connected to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this becomes profoundly important. For example, in John's Gospel, that's the easy and low-hanging fruit, in John's Gospel, the glory of the Lord is 
always, or almost always, the crucifixion. So the glory of the Lord departing, the Ark of the Covenant departing, this Ark is seen as the, as the glory of the Lord. And so when Christ is crucified, and that is the glory of the Lord, these two things are connected. Now, Paul does this theology in Romans chapter 3, I think, yeah, chapter 3, verse 21 and following, where he calls Christ the, the propitiation whom God has put forth by his blood. It's clunky in the English. It's clunky in the English because in the Greek, there's allusion to the hilasterion, to, to the top of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, where the blood of the lamb is poured once a year on Yom Kippur. Inside the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments, the stone tables of the law, which indeed show us our sin and, and accuse us uh, before God. And so the blood of the lamb covers that, those commandments, that stone law, and thus we are granted atonement, mercy by God for the sake of the, the blood of the innocent lamb. Well, Christ is our hilasterion, our mercy seat. It is his blood. He is the Lamb of God that covers the mercy seat once and for all, blotting out all our transgressions against the law. And he is the one then who sits in the mercy seat, enthroned upon the mercy seat as the crucified one, um, enthroned by the cherubim. So, all this to say, when we see this text, the glory of the Lord has departed and it's connected to the Ark of the Covenant, we ought to ultimately see this pointing us to the one who will sit upon the Ark, Christ crucified, Christ our crucified and risen Lord, and thus the glory is restored and the glory of God is found in this crucified one by whom, in whom, and through whom we are saved. So, I simply point that out by way of this text. That was the end of chapter 4. Now, then that enacts the fullness of this prophecy, this prophecy against Eli and his family. They're devastated. The priesthood is taken away from them. It becomes the priesthood of the Zadokites. The narrative shifts gears to what happens to the ark, and of course the Philistines have taken the ark, they bring it into the temple of their god, Dagon. Day one, or night one, um, something happens, we know what, and they find Dagon the next day uh, kneeling, prostrate, uh, on his face before the ark of the covenant. Uh, they set him back up, and this happens again, only Dagon is found the next day with his wrists, uh, his hands, cut off, um, cut off at the wrist, and his head also cut off, which this is indicative of a military victory, of, a, of the ceremony, what was ceremonially done to kings of conquered armies. And so um, what this indicates is that even though Israel lost the war, and even though Israel is now off doing its own thing, licking its wounds from its massive defeat at the hand of the Philistines, the Lord is going to go ahead and fight this war unilaterally. And you have to love this, because it's basically nothing but a box. 
and it's a box that even depends upon other people, you know, p- human beings to move this thing around. And yet this box, God uses it in order to devastate the Philistines and continue further and then finish the war against the Philistines, thus single-handedly winning victory for the people of Israel. This is then chapter 5, how the ark is moved from the great cities of the Philistines one after another, and the Lord sends plagues of, in English translation, tumors and rats. Some speculate something like the bubonic plague, we don't know. The long and the short is the Philistines are, are so fed up with this uh, and, and have been so thoroughly defeated by the ark of Yahweh that they concoct a plan to give it back to Israel they're going to run a test. And so they, they, they've got this test set up where they've got um, milk cows that have never pulled and um, a brand new cart and all of this stuff, you know, trying to control for all of these variables. And they, they leave the, the, the milk cows' um, calves back home. So if there's any, if there's any biases at all, it's that, the, it's that these cows are going to go back to the Philistine land and try to find their, uh, uh, find their calves. So they're hooked up into the Ark of the Covenant, and the deal is, hey, if they head off to Israel, then that's that. We know that it was the God of the Israelites who had done these things to us, and not just chance, and good riddance. Then also to appease this Israelite God, they come up with these golden tumors and golden rats, which ends up enriching Israel. As I mentioned last week, you have a recapitulation here, or not a recapitulation, I, I use that word, that's incorrect. I mean, you have like a reinstantiation, a, a rehearsal of sorts, a reenactment of the Exodus. Because you have, you have Yahweh leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and Egypt enriching the people. Here you have Yahweh leading, you know, again, doing his part of the covenant, leading out of the Canaanite land, out of the Philistine land, I mean, and uh, the Philistines are enriching. So this, again, Israel has broken the covenant, thus they've been given over to defeat. Here the Lord is reestablishing the covenant by doing his part once more, commemorating, reenacting, those would be better words for what the Lord is doing. So we ought to see this as covenantal, as typological. And then, as I mentioned earlier with the ark, in ultimately pointing us into what Christ is going to do, unilaterally, God fulfilling his covenant, the new covenant in his blood, vanquishing all of our enemies, the principalities and powers of darkness, once and for all, by himself. And, and thus, uh, you know, you can even think about this as, in terms of John's gospel, his going up and his returning to us. Here the ark is, is delivered to the Philistines and then returns to Israel. Christ is delivered to the cross and then returns to us uh, and enriches us um, with his victory. So you have these themes and motifs going on in this text, absolutely and to be sure. Israel hasn't much learned its lesson. And that we saw throughout the judges, that we're going to see throughout the era of the kings. And that really picks us back up then where we left off, chapter 6, verse 19. 
And he, uh, namely the Lord, Yahweh, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Remember, this is the city of Israel where the milk cows have drugged the ark. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, that's probably not the greatest translation, or at least not the greatest understanding. The implication seems to be that they looked in the ark of the Lord. Now, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you know what happens when you look in the ark of the Lord. You suddenly become a candle and you, you melt. Uh, but these folks looked in the ark of the Lord, and the Lord struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Yeah, well, and they should mourn because it was their own foolishness and their own uh, impropriety and, and boldness and lack of respect. And so the Lord rebukes them for this, and they are rebuked. Verse 20, Then the men of Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord this holy God? And that's an important question. In many and various forms, this question is taken up in the Psalms and in other parts of the Scriptures. Who can stand before the Lord? And of course, the answer in one sense is absolutely no one. The answer in another sense is only Jesus. He alone is worthy to stand before the Lord. He alone is righteous to stand before the Lord as true man. And then, by extension, because of Jesus, because of his shed blood, with the Lord there is forgiveness, and therefore we are given to stand, having been cleansed by his shed blood. This is a, you know, this is a much deeper theme here, but it is, uh, it is inherent here in the text. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? They continue, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Okay, so in other words, the Lord has come here. And, yeah, I don't really know what comment to make, to be honest. There's a little bit of a sadness in the, the city that receives the ark, not all that unlike the Philistine cities, end up saying, okay, well, he just took out 70 of our guys, get the ark out of here. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the sense here, but that is what happens. So... They call out to Kiriath-Jerim, come get this, and where's my note on Kiriath-Jerim? Yeah, this is nine miles northeast of Beth Shemesh, and uh, we are also given this note that because of the desecration of Shiloh, remember that was the, the original home of the ark, because of the desecration of Shiloh by Eli's sons, the ark could not return there. So, Kiriath-Jerim was politically neutral, not associated with worship. Uh, it, becomes, it becomes the place where the ark is going. So chapter 7, 
And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So, he showed himself to be victorious, he showed himself to be just, when they transgressed upon his holiness, he struck them. And as the study note points out, the theological point of this phrase, Israel lamented after the Lord, is that after oppression, the people cried out to the Lord and received deliverance. So the Lord continues to be the deliverer in their midst. Now, again, because we know where this is going, this is all rather the more poignant, isn't it? Because we know where this is going, we know what the people are going to request, we ought to stop and ask ourselves, is God being a faithful king unto them? Is he leading them into battle? Is he being gracious and merciful and protecting them? And, and yet at the same time upholding his position, his authority? Yeah, all of these things. The Lord is, is reigning quite effectively and doing for them what no earthly king could ever dream to do. And so we need to have this in view when we hear the people's complaint that's going to be forthcoming, that they want a king. This is quite the personal rejection of Yahweh who has indeed been their king in very concrete and tangible ways. So verse 3 of chapter 7, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So why, why this what looks to us outside of the context, this quid pro quo type arrangement. Well, it's not really that as much as this is a reinstantiation of the original covenant. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, I mean, that, that's essentially the first commandment. If you are going, I mean, the Lord has restored his side of the covenant with you by coming out of the Philistines, by by trampling the Philistines, by enriching the people, by means of the Philistines. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah. I mean, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. That's the essence of the covenant. We, of course, have already studied and taken a look at what the Asherah are. You can take a look um, down in your study note on Exodus 34, 13, if you want to know more about that. I just don't want to cover it again because we did that as we went through Exodus and probably again as we went through Judges. Here both Baals and Ashtar are mentioned, and that is certainly the case. We've looked at the Baals also, though the study note directs you to Numbers 25. So if you really want to know um, about Baals and Ashtar, there you go. So verse 4, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. All right, so though the covenant was broken, the covenant now has been restored. 
Verse 5, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. This is an unusual ritual, but it seems to be um, symbolically expressive of the tears of the people, of the sorrow and sadness of the people. Maybe to some extent it's an arid land and pouring out water on the arid land is seen as sacrificial, but probably, I think the study note, yeah, the study note takes it as expressing sorrow and tearful repentance. At any rate, they do what they do. So they gather at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, I think that this is the first time we've, I think this is the first time we've explicitly been told that Samuel was judging the people. I mean, we've seen him acting in, the, in a kind of priestly role, in a prophetic role. Here he's acting in a judge-type role. And again, in this narrow context, Samuel is leading Israel in repentance. I mean, this is a, we ought to view this as a liturgical assembly. It's, it, we really have nothing like it in our, in our culture. It would sort of be like if there was a national day of prayer, only we all gathered together in actual acts of repentance and mourning, and Samuel would be like leading that. I mean, that would kind of be what this is like. So here, judged is probably more in the narrow sense, as we're going to read. He's also the, the ju a judge in the larger sense, and really properly understood, um, he is the last judge of, uh, of this era. He's the final judge, and then he's also the one who makes for the king, and then you have a transition from the, the judges to the kings. Verse 7, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, <laughs> the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Ah, they're all gathered together, they're weeping and wailing, time to attack. Real nice people, the Philistines. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. What you see here is Samuel is in the role of mediator, right? And anytime you have someone in the role of mediator, we're, we're reminded of Paul's announcement, there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in this mediating role, Samuel, like so many patriarchs before him, and so many that we ourselves have seen having gone through the text, mediates on behalf of the people, um, and the Lord listens. Look at his mediation, verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering, a holocaust to the Lord. And that too, of course, points us in no uncertain terms to Jesus, who is uh, the, you know, the lamb. Who <laughs> He's both the sacrificer and the sacrifice. He gives himself and he is himself uh, the lamb. And he is indeed a whole burnt offering consumed by the wrath of, of God and, and with the the fiery baptism, the fiery outpouring of God's wrath upon him on the cross. He is our holocaust, our whole burnt offering. So all of that here typified or foreshadowed. Um, so Samuel took a nursing lamb, offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Again, the role of the mediator emphasized. 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. I mean, this is an incredible scene, just the way it's written. They're in the middle of this liturgical service, and, you know, the Philistines are drawing near to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. We sure wish we had more details and information on what exactly this was, but we don't. Is there a naturalistic explanation? Is it purely supernatural? No details given, no information given, um, but we do know that there was this mighty sound and Israel was in a, you know, inexplicably saved by Yahweh. So the Philistines are thrown into confusion and they are routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and, its, and called its name Ebenezer. And you remember from the hymn, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. We all thought it was some crotchety old man or something. Doesn't that sound like an Ebenezer? Yes, I think so. Ebenezer Scrooge. But here it's a stone. And uh, it's a stone, Ebenezer means stone of help. And so this, this stone, of course, it, it, I mean, this all too points to Jesus, who is the, you know, the stone whom the builders rejected, but God has chosen, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a stone of help, and um, Christ is our rock. And all, you think of all that scriptural motif, and here it is. Here's one more element of it. So this, this stone is set up between Mizpah and Shen, and it's called Ebenezer. And then Samuel says, Till now the Lord has helped us. I mean, the sense of which, up until now, like... And this is a fateful kind of statement because, you know, what's going to happen? Chapter 8. Chapter 8 is, they reject the Lord and want an earthly king. So this is really a statement of, like, you know, up, till, up to this very point, the Lord has been a king above all kings. And, and that's really what this means and what that stone indicates. We continue, and the hand of the Lord... Ooh, no, I'm sorry, 13. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And this is kind of an offhanded comment. And the Amorites are descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham. There's peace there, there's victory over the Philistines, like, things are good. Verse 15, Samuel judged, and, and so here's, here's the more universal sense in which Samuel judged, led Israel in that capacity. And again, judge, judge has the kind of flavor of savior attached to it. Uh, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to... Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. 
Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. So the study, note, um, the study Bible notes make the point that Samuel was the last of the judges and the first kingmaker. While Samuel maintained his established judicial circuit headquartered in the central region held by the Benjaminites north of Jerusalem. So he's got this rather, rather large area um, that he is responsible for. So then when we, when we read in ver, chapter 8, verse 1, we ought not be particularly surprised by this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Yeah, where does it say? Mm, maybe it's just to come. Verse 2, the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yeah, see, that's much more localized, I think. Hmm, I think that that's what I had read. Anyway, they're unfaithful. They're not counted as judges as such. That's the point of Samuel being the last judge. Perhaps it has to do with the smallness of their region. And if I'm incorrect there, it certainly has to do with their unfaithfulness. So, uh, verse 3, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So you have a little bit of a cycle here where you have Eli and his sons, uh, Phineas and Hophni, and now you have uh, Samuel and his sons, Joel and Abijah. But there's a big difference between Samuel and Eli, and uh, that should be self-evident. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, <laughs> How would you like to get this email? Behold, you are old, <laughs> and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So, to be sure, this is a rejection of Samuel and a slap in the face to Samuel. Couldn't be taken as anything but that. You are old. Your sons are wicked. We're done with you. That's what they say. Verse 6, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So there's, that shows some humility on the part of Samuel. It's like, okay, well, I mean, yeah, sure, maybe it stings that they don't want me to be their judge. Fine. They want somebody else to do the judging. Oh, wait a minute. No, they don't want somebody else to do the judging. They want a king. That's a big problem because Samuel understands that the Lord is their king. And this is a major spiritual problem. I mean, this is effectively, it's effectively a rejection of the covenant where the Lord is going to be their God and he'll give them all they need. And now they want a king and their rationale bespeaks their unfaithfulness, their worldliness, their disdain for God, and their disdain for their unique status as God's nation. So we'll see all that flesh itself out. But this is why it displeases Samuel. Verse 6, And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, 
but they have rejected me from being king over them. So that's how the Lord takes it. Look, Samuel, take it easy. Do what they say. They're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. So this desire to have an earthly king is nothing else than idolatry. It's a rejection of the one who is their Lord. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, that's their beginning, their origin as God's people, as a, a chosen people and a, and a holy nation. So according to all the deeds that I have done from the day I brought them out of, up out of Egypt, from day one, even to this day. In other words, for all the kindness I've shown them, they have been forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. You know, they've rejected me all this time, and so now they're also rejecting you. You, re you represent me. And, you know, this is, this is very much reminiscent of what Jesus says. A servant is not greater than his master. If, if they hated me, if they've persecuted me, they're most certainly going to hate and persecute you. you know, if they weren't impressed by my win winsomeness and creativity, they're not going to be impressed by your winsomeness and creativity either. Uh, they're going to reject you because they reject me and because they've rejected me from the very beginning up until the present. And you're just simply part of that. So Jesus says that to his apostles and disciples and by extension to all Christians. And So here we find ourselves uh, allied with, with Samuel in this, in this very uh, dynamic. So verse 9, the Lord says again to um, Samuel, Now then obey their voice, which... It's interesting because God's allowing them their evil, and God, because he is good, is going to work good out of their evil, but yeah, he's going to allow them their evil. Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. <laughs> yeah, this is fascinating. This is fascinating even in the left-hand sphere, like, like weighing weighing what government in the fallen world is really like. It's quite the insightful critique. All right, well, Samuel's going to go ahead, as the Lord said, and warn them. And that's verse 10 and following. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. In other words, he's going to take your sons away from you, make them his servants, and put them, your beloved sons, between himself and the Philistines. So, Again, reflect on that in terms of what God has just done via the ark. It's the opposite. In a sense, God left all the people safely in their land while he went into the Philistines. And very plainly, Samuel's telling what any earthly king will do. No, he's going to put your, you and your sons on the front lines, and he's going to stay safely behind. So it's a reversal of Yahweh's kingship. And we've reflected on that, of course, that every, every government 
Every king will certainly ask, its citizens will certainly ask you to lay down your life for it or lay down your life for him. But Christ is the only king who lays down his life for us, who lays down his life for the world. So there's a, there's a profound reversal in what kingship means. Kingship in the earth means lording it over people and saving yourself. And kingship in Christ's kingdom means serving others and laying down your life for them. And thus, too, you can see how in Jesus we are, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords because we are kings and lords in him exactly in that way and according to that pattern. Okay, well, back to the text. Point one, that's verse 11. He's going to take your sons and send them to war. Verse 12, And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. In other words, this great big uh, economy of, of his army and all his needs and the needs of his household, you're all going to serve that. I mean, yeah, comparatively, the yoke of the Lord was much lighter than the yoke of the earthly king that they're going to have to bear. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. So if you're not getting the, I mean, if you're not getting the picture, they want a king to serve them. And, of course, the exact opposite is going to happen, as it always does. Yeah, government is servants of the people. Right. Who believes that, ever? That's what, that's what everybody says, that's what everybody thinks, and it's the most superficial lie you could imagine. The, everyone ends up serving those who are, who are in government, those who are kings. And, and so it is here. I mean, basically, this is taxation in all forms, and it's going to be steep taxation, and it's going to be personal. He's going to take, I mean, the goods that, that under Yahweh would have otherwise been yours and the children that under Yahweh would have been yours and the economy of your own household that otherwise would have been just yours and the, and the animals and the workers and everything that would have just been yours. Now you get to take a huge chunk of that and give it all to the king. He's not going to serve you. You're going to serve him. That's really what what's going on here, and, and that's, unfortunately, we all just know that that's the way of government. It's just the way it works universally. And it really points to a big problem, like government, you can see, then is essentially a fallen, government that is not the government of God himself is fallen, and it is, a, it is an instrument and a part of the fallen world. If Adam and Eve never fell into sin, there would be no such thing as government. And a text like this really bears that out. It's a necessary evil. And then it's an evil that, that 
instantly becomes corrupt because of who we are as fallen human beings and corrupt and self-serving and actually harms the people it is supposed to help and enslaves the people it is supposed to keep free. That's just the nature and the way of government. Those of you who are interested in this, <laughs> join us on Sunday mornings for our study in Revelation where one of the beasts, one of the apocalyptic beasts that really exists uh, for all time is government, is corrupt government and the corrupting influence of government and how government always also seems inevitably and without fail to come straight up contrary to God and in straight up persecution of God's people. Long enough timeline. And you see that right away even with a person like Saul, the first king. So I belabor the point. Let's, let's simply move on to verse 18, which is a nice summary statement. And in that day, that is when you realize that God has granted you your heart's desire, he has answered your wicked prayer, in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Yeah, so you're choosing the Lord or a king, and you're choosing you know, an earthly king or a heavenly king, and you're choosing to have an earthly king. Verse 19, we get some of their rationale. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, <laughs> which is a great counter-argument. But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. Ah, have more asinine and stupid words ever been spoken. We want to be just like everyone else. Isn't that the impulse of sin? I think, I think that's the pull of sin and, and the big pull of the world to us. In some degrees it continues as we're adults, but we especially feel this as we're young. We want it, and young and Christian, you want to be like everyone else. It is just the epitome of foolishness, though. We may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us. And look what they say. Look how naive this is that our king may judge us. Right, because he's going to be more impartial and more merciful than God. Yeah, no. And then here's the, just the thing that takes the cake. And go out before us and fight our battles. How many kings in history lead the charge, leaving the people safely behind him? None. Not one. The king sits in the back with all the people going. I mean, that's what Samuel's just said. And again, I, again, juxtapose this, contrast this with what the Lord has just done. Remember his military defeat of Dagon? Remember his military defeat of Philistine? Where were the people? Safely behind him. He was doing it all himself. The very thing that these people want is the very thing that Yahweh has done for them. It's just the height of insanity. So they want to get rid of Yahweh. They think they're going to have a king fight for them, and the exact opposite is true. He's going to have them fight for him. Well, what are you going to do? Verse 21, And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. I love this, and I love the way that Samuel prays. He just simply prays to the Lord. You saw this earlier in this chapter, too. He simply prays to the Lord as if the Lord just needs to know. 
yeah, I know he's omniscient, but he needs, uh, he needs to know. And don't you love this? In the ears of the Lord. We've seen the Lord so personified in this text as, as he so frequently is standing before Samuel and now having ears. Uh, it's a very much God in human form. This is very much why we ought to, we ought to see Jesus Christ here who Samuel is praying to and complaining to, which if it's Jesus Christ, and, and it most certainly is because these scriptures testify to him, as he himself says, and it's Jesus Christ himself standing here, they're rejecting Jesus. And they're rejecting Jesus in, not only for an earthly king, but for who will, be, who will be Saul. There's a very similar parallel in the rejection of Jesus for Barabbas. I won't belabor that point, but Barabbas means son of the father, Bar-Abbas. And Jesus is the son of the father. And these represent two different leaderships. So we're also told that he's a, he's a murderer and a thief, like a brigand. Um, but the language and I th is, is leste, which also means insurrectionist. Barabbas was a messianic figure, a son of the father who is going to overturn Rome by violence, thus the murder, right? By violence, by insurrection, he was going to lead the people. So when, uh, I mean, this is one of the things that I think Mel Gibson gets wrong in his movie, The Passion, which is otherwise excellent, when Barabbas is you know, pictured as this like slobbering lunatic serial killer, it's like, that, eh, that's probably not what's going on. They selected him because they wanted that kind of Messiah. And that's precisely what the people here are doing in the Old Testament, rejecting Jesus for an earthly king, for, for Saul, for someone who's going to lead them into battle and conflict, as they think. Yeah. So there, that's definitely going on in this text. This repeated the word, repeating the words of the people in the ears of the Lord, we've got to see like, he is, he is speaking that right into Jesus' ears that they've chosen a different king instead of him. Verse 22, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. So like that's Jesus. Like, okay, give them what they want. Jesus also ultimately is their king and the king they truly need but don't deserve. That's all of us truly need but don't deserve him, you know, when he's crowned in thorns, the king of the Jews. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So like you're going to get what you want. All right, chapter 9, verse 1. We've got some time left. There was a man of Benjamin whose name, uh, yeah, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Now, I mean, again, just note, note the wisdom of what the Holy Spirit is doing. And notice, too, the wisdom of what Isaiah will, will end up doing uh, years down the line. When Isaiah comments that, that with the true king, when Jesus is king, there is no, no form or comeliness that we should desire him. And look how, look how this king is described. You know, he's a handsome young man. 
there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And again, this continues. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any uh, uh, of the people. So in other words, Saul is this, like, he looks like a supermodel. He's taller than everybody else. The implication is that he's strong. He's just, I mean, he's the guy you look at and say, that should be our king. Of course, the contrast that Isaiah points out is that when you look at Jesus, you wouldn't have those same thoughts. I mean, it's almost what's humorous about those, about all the Jesus videos like you, that you probably saw with me in the 80s, where he's like this, he's like this flowing-haired, crystal blue eyes, obviously supermodel type of actor, you know, walking around, and everybody else is talking like a commoner, and he's got this stately, otherworldly speech. I mean, he looks like a king, right? That, yeah, no. That's probably has it exactly wrong. I mean, it, it's not that Jesus was like somehow repulsive or something. That's not the point. But he was just kind of like, you're, like within the sphere, within the realm of average. There was nothing, as Isaiah says, about Jesus, about that king that stands out and makes you go, oh, yeah, that's the guy. But that was the case with Saul. So again, you have this reversal motif that we've already seen in spades in Samuel. We've already seen the author of Samuel so interested, but you have this reversal motif where Saul is the guy who looks the part and isn't, and ultimately Jesus will be the guy who doesn't look the part and is. Okay, so verse 3, and boy, yeah, well, we'll try to get a little further. It's not going to be a good stopping point today, but we'll just have to deal with it. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, so, so donkeys as we've seen already in this text and in, yeah, it was in Judges in particular, the donkeys are signs of wealth, you know. I mean, it's not exactly equivalent to a fleet of sports cars, but mm, it's the sign of wealth. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and rise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to, the, to him, Behold, there is a man of God. Remember that shorthand for like prophet or seer. Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go, namely to find the donkeys, which is kind of, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess no comment. It strikes me that this would not be exactly what a prophet is sitting there waiting for. Like, hey, could you help us find our donkeys? Could you, like, use your prophetic superpowers so we can, like, track these guys down? I don't think that that's really what the prophet was there for. Be that as it may. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? So this was customary, kind of like an honorarium. You know, if you're going to go and ask this favor, this, 
this prophecy, this knowledge, you, you would bring a gift. And so uh, that's, that's what's going on here. Verse 8, the servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. That's um, probably about a quarter of a day's wage, the study note says. So not a lot, but appropriate. I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's quote-unquote prophet was formerly called a seer. Here's a little parenthetical note from the, um, the author just letting us know the difference in language there. Verse 10, And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up this, the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. Now, normally, a sacrifice on the high place would be code word for bad, uh, but in this case, it's actually not. And the study points out that the study note points out this usually is associated with illicit pagan deities, this high place. Yet here it refers to the appropriate altar area in the Israelite community. Okay. Verse thirteen: As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. I just wanted to check something. Yeah. And this the language of prince is literally one who has been announced but is not yet king. So uh, the study note goes on. In a sense, Saul is still preparing for his kingly office, the prince designate, uh, designate or crown prince. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what's going on there. Anyway, God has selected, the Lord has selected Saul, probably for the very reasons and themes that we touched on earlier. He has selected Saul to be prince over, and then look at the language, over my people Israel. I mean, it's not as though the Lord's like relinquishing claim. They're not going to be Saul's people. They're still going to be his people. So you shall anoint him, make him prince or king in waiting. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. All right, so we see that the king is going to have a savior role, and that's going to be a component. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me, which is just mind-bogglingly gracious. I mean, again, they've pretty much spat in his face, rejected his kingship, demanded to have a king other than him. This is where you can see the humble heart of God and God's own humility, and like when Jesus says, like, like meek or, or gentle and lowly of heart, like you can see it in spades here. Sometimes we go, I don't really see that, or I don't really think that, or what's the biblical evidence for that? 
you can't do much better than a, than a verse like this where you've seen him just be rejected, spat upon, insulted. And then look what his sentiment is towards those people who did this to him. He says, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So in other words, even though he, he doesn't want them to have this earthly king, he's nonetheless going to use this earthly king to save them, to bless them, and benefit them. Again, this is just a stunning but not uncommon picture of the lowly and merciful heart of God. Verse 17 yeah, and remember when Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said, love those who love you, etc., and hate those who hate you, hate your enemy. Um, but, but I tell you, love those who hate you. And you see that, like, this is what Jesus had, this is who Jesus is from the, from, from the dawn of the scriptures. Like, this isn't just some weird New Testament thing. This is the essence and the heart of God is to love those who hate them, hate, hate him and, and do good to those uh, who do evil to him and bless those who curse him. And that, that's really what he's doing right here. All right, let's see if we can get to a stopping point here in the last couple minutes. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. Boy, you get, we you get weird parallels here. Samuel in this position of John the Baptist and Saul in the position of Christ. Samuel's going to anoint Saul. John the Baptist is going to anoint Christ. You have some really interesting kind of parallels here. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people, govern my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel, is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And that's interesting. You know, there's multi, multiple layers here. On the one hand, he looks like a king. On the other hand, Saul starts, gosh, he's such a tragic figure now that I kind of remember his story. He's such a tragic figure because he starts somewhat humble of heart like you see here. Uh, and boy, does that change. Well, like I said, we're not going to get to a good start, uh, stopping place today. So let's just let off there. We'll have to pick up and maybe do a little review and rehearse of the last part of Chapter 9 before we finish it out next week. Again, feel free to join us this Sunday for Revelation. It's live streaming at 9.20 a.m. You can also catch the recording. We're studying that book on Sundays. On Thursdays, we've just begun a new book called Christology by David Scare. Uh, so if you want to begin that book with us, if you've never really studied Christology before, you're not too late. We just barely, barely, barely laid a foundation earlier today. We're going to jump into that text full stride next week, as well as then return back here to uh, 1 Samuel.